There's a great quote by the US golf champion of yesteryear, Ben Hogan, that says, with keenness and determination, there is nothing you can't accomplish. They're, they're nice words, but when you see an actual example in real life of someone who pulls off something remarkable, who makes their dreams come true against all odds, the Cinderella story of Australian cricket really for the last 30 or 40 years has been that of Colin Miller. It's extraordinary when you think about this. 33 years old, been playing first-class cricket for 12 years. And probably everyone in Australia in the cricket world thought time had passed him by. There's no chance he's ever going to make the Australian team. One person disagreed. That was Colin Miller. And through self-belief, determination and imagination, he got himself in the Australian team and a couple of years later crowned as the Australian Test Player of the Year, making dreams come true. Colin Miller joins us on the show. G'day, Cole. Lucky, how are you, buddy? Mate, it's it's awesome to have you on. We'll, we'll get into that in a sec, but I want to, another key component to your story, of course, your nickname, Funky. And this is one big part of it because there are people in, in sporting folklore that stand out off the page, They're, that do something special, that resonate, that captivate the public. And just to give an indicator of this, Adam Zampa, who's one of the best slow bowlers in short form cricket anywhere in the world, as a kid, idolised Colin Miller. And I heard him say this story recently. When he was eight years old, copying Colin Miller, dyed his hair red, yeah, bright red, jumped in the swimming pool, chlorine got to it, went pink, mum shaved the head. So Adam Zampa, someone who's now dominating cricket, as a kid, loved you. Because for those of uh, listening that are under the age of 25 or 30, have a look on YouTube. <laughs> You'll see Funky Miller with bright blue hair, not just off to the side, on the cricket field. Blight blue, uh, red, uh, the peroxide blonde. Funky, uh, it looks like you had a lot of fun playing cricket. <laughs> I did, I did. And I actually read that article that Adam Zappa was talking about that last week. I saw it over here. Uh, I try to wake up every morning and read the Australian press to see what's happening in the world because, you know, having lived over here for a few years, uh, there's nothing but American news over here. You don't get any world news at all. Mm -hmm. I read my Australian newspapers every day. Um, yeah, I, I loved playing cricket. Cricket was just something that I wanted to do from a very young age. Uh, my dad was a cricketer. He, he played he played a lot of good um, club-level cricket in Melbourne. Um, he was my first coach. My older brother was a, was a fast bowler. Um, who was a superstar fast bowler, probably the fastest bowler in Victoria. Um, he's four years older than me. Um, um, uh, it, my my grandfather on my on my mum's side uh, was a was a fantastic grade cricketer uh, in, in in Melbourne as well in the suburbs. So it was always inevitable that I was going to play cricket. Just um, at what level? I think every kid, once you decide you want to play cricket, you decide you want to play for Australia as well. You hope you're going to play for Australia. Because that's why you play cricket, is to one day be on the MCG and, and walk out there in front of 80,000 Victorians and Australian fans and, and hopefully do well. Well, that's it. Um, and I, I mean, it's extraordinary what, what you did. So I want to, if we go back to 1997, you, you know, you're about 33, you've been playing first-class cricket a long time, medium, medium pace bowler, really smart player. And a really good, strong Sheffield Shield cricketer. At that stage, a Sheffield Shield was, you know, as strong as international cricket is today sometimes. Um, an amazingly strong competition. You're playing really well, but there's just not an opportunity to get in the Australian side. And my understanding is you're over in Holland, you're playing some club cricket, and you decided to completely flip the script. Can you tell us what you did? 
Um, yeah, you're right. That, if you look back at the era that I was bowling medium pace and, and medium fast, there was Australia had a plethora of fast bowlers. Mm. So, you know, although I was having 45 wicket seasons in first class cricket in the shield cricket, there was never going to be an opportunity for me to, to, to play at the next level as a, as a medium pace bowler. So I had to discover something else. Um, I knew I could bowl spin. My, my older brother, Wayne, uh, and I, as, as you do as brothers, spent our childhood in, in the nets, in the local cricket cricket ground and uh, I was actually a better leg spin bowler when I was younger than I was an off spin bowler uh, and my brother was a fast bowler so he always just tried to kill me all day long <laughs> and when I finally got a chance to bowl to him uh, I would bowl a bit of left arm, a bit of right arm, a bit of off spin, a bit of leg spin, um, I'd just do a bit of everything and so the opportunity to bowl some spin in club cricket really first started in, in the UK. Huh? Um, we would train two nights a week, I would do my fitness work in the gym the other three or four nights a week, then I'd bowl all, all day Saturday and Sunday. So on Tuesday and Thursday, I'd bowl spin the nets just to give my body a break and mm. it was something I enjoyed doing. I never got a chance to bowl it uh, while I was playing the leagues in England. But you're right, in 96 and 97 when I was playing in Holland, um, again, I would I would go to the nets in the morning on my own. Um, I'd roll out the mat on myself. We played on the old mats in those days in Holland. Is that right? I, I would roll out a mat, stretch it out so it was tight, put it, put one stump in, and then put a marker about 25, 30 feet behind the stumps. Yeah. And that's where I wanted my ball to end after I'd bowled it. So that way I've got my consistent pace through the air. Yeah. Um, if you know mats, they turn square. You put, it, put a bit of rip on the ball. So then you've got to learn to pitch it out in the right area to get back towards the stump. So I spent probably almost two full seasons in, in Holland really honing the art, in my mind, of how to bowl off spin. Um, and for me, it was purely judging by how far the ball went past the stumps and by how far outside off stump I could get it to come back and hit the stumps. Um, and I bowled it in probably three or four games that second season in Holland um, with a bit of success. But you know, when, when you're the pro athlete in the, in the team, you're signed as a fast bowler. You really got to commit to bowling, bowling fast. Um, so when I had teams, if I had the first four or five biggest innings, I'd, I'd bowl a couple of hours of spin. And then the next that preseason back in Australia um, in Tassie, we were playing a few trial games before the season started. And I, I'd said to David Boone, you know, we need a bit of variety in our bowling attack. Mm-hmm. We had a fantastic medium pace bowling attack, but we had, didn't have that variety. And Hobart being a pretty flat track, mm-hmm. um, we were having trouble bowling teams out. Um, and I'd said to Babji, I said, you know, I, I can do, I can bowl spin. You know, trust me, I can do it. I can be, a, I can open a bowling for you and I can come on second change and bowl spin. So I did it in a couple of pre-season games and I got David out once. So I got a couple other guys out um, and really just, it went on from there. And what it did to us in Tasmania, it gave us 12 players on the field because instead of having just one, you know, your three fast bowlers and maybe an all-rounder, we had three fast bowlers and an all-rounder and a spinner all of a sudden. And you yeah. still only got your 11 players in the team. So there were games where I bowled 30 and 40 overs in, in a day. There's one day I bowled 50 overs in a day. Um, just because it just gave David as a captain that, that flexibility to bowl me from either end or whatever style he wanted me to bowl. I love it. The fact that you had the, the creative thinking to come up with it. You you had the dedication to hone the craft then the self-belief to actually go and tell David Boone, one of the greatest Australian careers of all time, who was your captain in Tassie, said, look, this is what I want to do. Talking about self-belief. So here we, I've got this quote here. Peter Taylor, who was a selector at the time, you were sitting next to him and you said, mate, I'm going to bowl spin next year and I think I'm going to be the best spinner in Australia. In my mind, 
I couldn't see myself not being successful. What you did the next season is become the most successful bowler in the history of Sheffield Shield cricket. Sheffield Shield cricket's been going for 800 years. You became the most successful bowler ever in a single season. Amazing. You broke a 60-year record of uh, Chuck Fleetwood Smith. Uh, you took, I mean, 67 wickets in 11 games at an average of 24 bowling offspin, as you said, on flat tracks. And at that time, 97, 98, you're bowling against Dean Jones. I mean, you're bowling against some bloody high-quality opposition. That's extraordinary. I mean, can you tell us about that role of self-belief? What was going on between the ears that actually allowed you to do what you did? So I'll go back to the Peter Taylor story. And I was, I think I got bought for a game. Uh, so I was uh, not even in the squad. And I, I'd known Peter for a couple of years, you know, playing against these guys. and know he was a selector. And um, and I, so I just sidled up next to him and said, we're just chatting about cricket. And I'd watched Australia over the last, the previous three or four seasons try out a couple of spinners mm. um, and, and with, without a lot of great success. And I just saw there was a, there was a gap there. Yeah. I just, and, and I have, and it's not arrogance. Self-belief is knowing in your own self that you can do something well. Um, sometimes it comes across as arrogance. And if you look at it, at a, that's why I love to be a good batsman. They had a lot of self-belief. And sometimes it came across as arrogance. And Dean Jones was always the best example of that. Just a fantastic, fantastic athlete with great belief in his own ability. But people thought he was arrogant. No, he wasn't. He was just a really good cricketer. Mm. Um, so I knew that if I was given the opportunity to play for Australia at some stage, I would do well. That we had been at a, as a medium pace bowler or as a spin bowler. I just knew deep down in my own heart um, that if I was given, if given that chance, um, I wouldn't let the team down. Uh, and I knew after 13 years of first-class cricket that I could do uh, any job that was asked of me. Um, one of the big benefits I had as a, as a spin bowler was um, I had great control. Um, yeah. Right from ball one, I could put two bat pads in from ball one and know that they weren't going to get killed. Yeah. Um, my my captains in the Australian team, Mark Taylor and, and Stephen Ward, both knew that as well. So yeah. when they gave when they threw the ball to me, whether it was the new ball or the old ball, I they knew that straight away I was going to I was going to be on the mark and I could put pressure on the batsman, and I knew I could do that. And and that season of the 67 wickets, and you can ask any athlete in the world, when you get in the zone, um, there's there's something that happens to you. And I honestly believe that every game I played, I was going to get 10 wickets. It was just there was a three month period. There. If you go back and look at those stats, I started that season off really slowly, and I, I think it was about the fourth or fifth game where I got up six or seven wickets. And then for the rest of the season, we just, you know, just dominated. But I just got into a groove, and the ball just come out of your hand like you're not even trying. It's just, and it's turning, and it's drifting, and people are getting out. And every every ball you bowl, you feel like you got a chance. And then that self belief becomes a little bit of, wow, I, you know, I really can do this. And, and that relates to anything you do in life. I mean, I I, I love playing golf now, and I've yeah. been down to a two handicapper. Um, I'm not there anymore, but got out play enough. But but when I'm playing, even now, if I'm playing to a ten handicap, I still believe I can go around a six under. I never have, but I still believe I can because I, I know that even that, given the right opportunity, and given the right circumstances, that one day is going to come for me. Totally. Can, what about for people listening to this? I mean, because that's the thing. We, you know, you look at Instagram. There's an inspirational quote every thirty seconds, and 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 nice words are great. But talking to people who've actually put those words into action and done it, that's what we've got with yourself here. What advice would you have for people that in whatever area of life, whether it's sport or anything, personal, business, when they're struggling 
with that self-belief, what advice would you have? How do you tap into it when you're, when you're going no good? So I had to learn that again when I moved to the United States. Um, mm. When I retired from cricket, I went into a little bit of media, so a little bit of TV week. Mm. I did some stuff at ESPN over in Singapore. I was doing a little bit of radio and TV in Melbourne, writing for magazines and newspapers, doing corporate speaking, talking about myself and having a, lot of, a couple of funny stories. And then you move to the US in 2008 and no one knows who you are. Yeah. they got to find a new career. And luckily, my wife's best friend was the CEO of a timeshare company. And they said, hey, we'll give you we'll give you a job. Do you want to work in security or do you want to work in maintenance? <laughs> I know nothing about either of them, but how about I go for maintenance? Yeah. And I, even though I was getting the job was being created for me in the company, I still had to go for an interview with the director of, we call it engineering over here, it was really maintenance. Huh. And um, he, uh, we sat down for the interview and I really didn't know anything about how to change the light bulb, how to fix anything in the world. I didn't know anything. And he told me that the wage was $12 an hour. And I'm like going, what, every hour? He said, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I go for 40 hours a week. So I worked out very quickly. That was uh, $480 a week. I'm thinking I can't live on that. I just come from $4,000 an hour as a corporate speaker. Yeah. Um, I, and after the first week, I, went, I came home to my wife and said, look, I can't do this. I need to be in charge. So of the next, uh, just under two years, I taught myself how to fix everything in our house. While my wife was at work on Friday, I would tear the house apart. Yeah. I would tear the refrigerator, the oven, the microwave, the dishwasher, the washing machine, the dryer, and put it all back together, hopefully before she got home. <laughs> and, and within the next 18 months, I was assistant director of, it, of engineering. Uh, and now I've been working in this field for almost 11 years now. Uh, I'm an assistant chief engineer at the Marriott Hotel in Las Vegas, and and I'm, I, I run a team of 30 guys and girls that work for me. Um, and I've just made myself create a new career because I had to. Yeah. Now I could have easily sat back and maybe took a job with Cricket America or maybe done something else, but mm. you know I was only 44 when I moved here, and mm. you, know, you got to you got to do something in life, and you can't just sit back and expect things to be given to you like they were in Australia. And when you play cricket for Australia, a lot of things are given to you. But when you're out on your own, you've got to do your own thing. Um, it was a really good learning experience for me. Mm. But getting back into being a manager and leading a team again is what I really enjoy. So now I'm back in that team atmosphere and I get to help people and guide people. That's fantastic. And you, I, I've been to Vegas a few times and, and your Marriott's Grand Chateau is just magnificent. I, I'm actually a Bonvoy member, so I've got to come and stay at the Marriott's yeah. Grand Chateau. Vegas is a lot of fun. We might get to that a little bit shortly, but there's something interesting you really said there. And I actually, I um, you won't remember this, I do. So in 1999, I was in grade five, I went to a, a cricket clinic and the Aussie players were always fantastic. They'd go to the MCG and put on a clinic for the kids in the lead up to the Boxing Day test. You were there. You're in the Australian setup. It's a, you know, a, an amazing time for you in life. You're in the Australian side, and all these kids are standing around. And I don't know. It must have been one of the dads or someone brought up the topic of luck. Someone brought up that topic. They just said something about luck to you. And I don't know what the context was, but I still can vivid. And all my life, I've remembered these words you said because it just it just stuck with me. And it's I've tried to embody it. You said, "You make your own luck in life," you know. And it's such an empowering thing to rather than leave it up to fate or chance, you actually go and do it. And obviously, that's something you told me as an eleven-year-old kid stuck with me forever. 
um, and it's something that whether you're talking about what you've done in Vegas or, you know, because a lot of athletes struggle. After the curtain goes yep. down, they struggle. You have been able to reinvent yourself there. But to even get yourself in the Australian team, you did it. So it just shows an iron will. Um, yeah. Do, I, you don't remember that, Dave, but I, I, I wouldn't have imagined because if you so no, many but, of those but clicks. I, but, I, but I firmly believe in the old saying that you create your own luck. And, like, uh, I listen to it, the Howard Stern show over here every morning on the way to work and then on the way home from work, and he was interviewing Ed Sheeran just two hmm? days ago. And everyone just thinks that Ed Sheeran is just a fantastic, just fantastic songwriter and musician who's making hundreds of millions of dollars, and it, you know, it just happened for him overnight. You know, he just got lucky. Mm. Well, he, he made his first album when he was 11 years old. He got a record mm. deal when he was 11. It was no good. It was a terrible album. Even he admits it was a terrible album. <laughs> but over the next 10 to 11 years, he practiced and, and learned to write songs better and learned to sing better and. You know, it's, it's that 10,000 hours of practice that all these people talk about, the 10,000 hours before you get good at anything. That's creating your own luck. Yeah. Yeah, no one gives you anything in life. There's very, there's very few athletes or business people or academics that have had their career given to them. Mm. Some of them like maybe LeBron James. But then he'll tell you that if you watch him, I follow him on social media, mm. in the off-season, he spends more time in the gym than probably half the other league spends yeah. in the gym. So. It's not luck that he's the best player in the world. Mm. He's worked at it, but you're still going to make that luck. And people perceive it as people perceive it as luck, but I, I perceive it these days more as it was a, a lot of very much hard work and dedication that gives you that perception that you've had a lot of luck in life. Yeah, I love it. I love it, and, and it's so funny hearing you say it because it just harks back to literally 23 years ago. Hey, I, I want to talk to you about um, what it was like. So you have that magical summer, as you said, three months. You're just in the zone. At the end of that summer, was there a part where you actually got to? I don't know. You're sitting in the car or something at the set of traffic lights. You get to think, she was. I actually did it. You know, like because you had the belief, but then you did it. Is there a chance? Did you get a moment where you actually were able to sort of reflect or bask in it? Um, not, probably not for a couple of years because mm. um, I got into the Australian team and there was a lot more test cricket being played back then. Um, mm. The tours were a lot longer, so you spent a lot more time of the of your year playing cricket. And back then we played, all the Australian players played shield cricket as well, and club cricket yeah. like today. So you, you're busy, really. I had three and a half years of this being really, really busy playing cricket 10 to 11 months a year. Yeah. Uh, then you had that six weeks off in the middle of you know, over Christmas sometimes. And so it wasn't really until um, probably at the end of my career in 2001, mm. 2002, where you, you get a chance to sit back and go, wow, that was a pretty good run. You know? <laughs> and then you get reminded by, by your friends and then people, people on social media. Um, I still get sent the video of me bowling a blue hair in Sydney. Someone sent it to me <laughs> just the other day on Facebook. Hey, Colin, have you seen this before? <laughs> I get that at least every two weeks. I get that sent me once. Um, I'll get the video of me hitting Kirtley for a couple of sixes in uh, Antigua a couple of times a year. Mm. So that sort of stuff, then you sit down and go, well, yeah, I, I did. I, I really enjoyed that time. But while I was doing it, I was just so focused on wanting to be as good as I could be mm. for that period I was going to be in the team. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to be contributing to Australia, winning test matches. Mm. I wanted to do what I'd watched my heroes do while I was growing up. Mm. And that was to win games for Australia. Well, you did that. You were part of arguably the greatest Australian team of all time, 16 in a row, undefeated. I mean, Steve Waugh, Mark Waugh, Shane Waugh, Glenn McGrath, you know, Matthew Hayden, Justin Langer, Adam Gilchrist, Colin Miller. 
Brett Lee. Uh, an amazing team. Um, what did it feel like in that setup? You're playing with some of the greatest players that are ever going to play cricket. What was it like walking into that dressing room? Debut in Pakistan, Rawalpindi last time we went to Pakistan. Mark Taylor, 3-3-4, not out. What did it feel like? It must have been amazing. Uh, it was pretty cool. Um, the big advantage, and I've said this before, was I've, I've been playing first-class cricket for 12 years. Mm. So I knew everybody in the Australian team. Uh, we, we played against each other numerous times and had beers together and after the games and gone out together and had fun. And So me, it, I wasn't some 20-year-old kid making his debut who played six mm. first-class games uh, and mm. walking into a room full of veterans. I was walking into a room where I was one of the oldest guys in the, in the room um, play, to play a game with guys I'd grow up uh, like yeah. guys like Damien Martin and Justin Langer who were young kids compared to me and uh, and now I'm in the team with them and um, you know Matthew Hayden I watched come through Shield cricket in Queensland I played on played in his debut game against him um, played against those guys for for years before I got to play for Australia so hmm. the intimidation factor wasn't there for me yeah. uh, all I wanted all I wanted was to be given the opportunity to play and, and at 34 I, I in my own mind I'm Thought they would. They're not going to take me to Pakistan to sit on the bench. Mm. They're going to take me to Pakistan to play. Um, so I was prepared mentally when I got there to, to play every test match. Jeez. How did it feel when you first walk out in the baggy green cap? What did it feel like? Pretty cool. Yeah, Mark Taylor presented my baggy green to me, so that was really nice. And then um, mm. uh, my this, my first over ball was medium pace, and I think it was the fourth ball of my first over. I got Salah Malik caught at second slip. Uh, who, would, who would have bet on that, eh? Yeah. Um, <laughs> he might have known it was coming fourth ball. Yeah, just, you know, I'm telling you, it was, a, it was a, nearly a wide half volley. That's what it was. He had to reach the front hand to hit it. So uh, Mark Taylor took a low catch to his war, I think, caught it low to his right-hand side. So yeah. that was pretty cool to get that one. We got the way. And then later in that, in that uh, series, I, um, I bowled the ball that Ian Healy broke the Australian record with for wicket-keeping yeah. catches. Um, so that was a great memory as well. And it, it's, it was just good fun. Um, I, I didn't make a fool of myself, except when Wazza Macaram was bowling to me. That was a bit embarrassing, but uh, the rest of it was pretty much fun. And I, I really enjoyed Pakistan. I'm so glad to read yesterday that Australian team, they're going to go back there next year because mm-hmm. uh, I was playing golf on the weekend. Uh, it's a little corporate day over here. And, you know, most of the guys, most of the guys I play with know who I am in Australia. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys I hadn't met before was asking me about my Australian cricket career and, you know, you knew that I travelled the world. You said, where are your favourite, favourite places you've ever went to? And I always say Pakistan. Pakistan right. was one of my, probably in my top five and I've been around the world six or seven times. Yeah. Um, I, I really, really enjoyed Pakistan. It was, I thought it was a beautiful place. The people were magnificent when we were there. Yeah. Um, spending a day up in the Khyber Pass was a, a memory that I'll have for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, a day with the, the Khyber riflemen in their, in their army barracks halfway up up at the Khyber Pass. Um, it was just a fun, just a fun for me uh, experience because outside of cricket, I'm a traveller. So yeah. to, to now get paid to go to Pakistan and have it done for free, um, <laughs> I'm taking every opportunity I can get. Even though at the time we were surrounded by security and just across the road you had to have like a couple of armed, armed, armed guards with you and your, and your own personal Australian security. Yeah. But it was it was just you know, a great tour, and, and the people there were fantastic. And our, our our liaison manager we had, and I just can't remember his name, but he was a fantastic guy. We had for six weeks while we were there. Mm. Um, just great memories. 
and and that's the thing. I mean, you're in that team, but you weren't just sort of an also ran. You were an integral part of that side that that created that all time record. The West Indies had the record up to then, eleven games undefeated. You guys went sixteen undefeated. I mean, jeez. And you're there. I mean, you play eighteen tests. You average twenty six, which is an unbelievable average for an off spin bowler playing Test cricket, particularly at that time. That was such a strong time in international cricket. Um, you know, the fact you're able to achieve that success and then to be named the Test Player of the Year for the year 2000 at the Allen Border Medal Nights, what, what did that feel like? <laughs> oh, I was a little bit drunk that night. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I had no idea that I was even going to be voting for anything, so I was just there to enjoy myself. And yeah. on our table, I think it was me and Damien Fleming and Greg Blewett and... Uh, Michael Kasperwich and a few other guys. I can't remember the other guys on there. And um, we decided between ourselves that every time one of us got a boat in whatever medal it was, we'd, we'd drink the drink in front of us. Well, I was I was on red wine. Uh, I'd had close to, you know, our tables getting boats left, right, centre. I'd probably had two bowls of red when they announced that I'd won it. And I, I, I equated to being pulled over by the police when you've been speeding. And you, or you, or you think you've been drink driving, and all of a sudden you sober up really quickly. Yeah, because you know, I'm sitting in the back of the room. I'm not near the front where the award winners normally sit. Yeah. I'm way back, so I've, I've got a 40, 50 yard walk. I put the jacket back on. My girlfriend's crying next to me, and all the guys are cheering. And now I've got to try to get up there after the countback between me and Michael Slater. Yeah, uh, I've got to get up to the stage and now talk to Richie Benno, one of my heroes as well. So uh. that whole night was just a was just a. Uh, amazing, amazing for me. I hadn't even packed for the Indian tour yet. We were leaving the next day to go to India. Um, I got my girlfriend went home, and I, I all my friends rang me, and they all got dressed up, and they came into the, into the Crown Casino, and we had a really big night out. Uh, I lost <laughs> oh, my trophy yeah. that I got. Um, the nightclub found it for me and kept it for me for a few weeks to go back to India. Um, I got to India and unpacked my suitcase, and there was nothing but like three three t-shirts, a pair of shorts, and some thongs. That was my girlfriend packing for me. My cricket gear was all right, but as far as going out, clothes, anything social, there was yeah. nothing there for me to wear. Fantastic. Oh, mate, it's, you're living the dream. Hey, on that Indian tour, that was one of the greatest tours of all time. For people that, that perhaps missed it, too young to, to know about it, the 2001 three-test tour of India. I mean, that was just incredible. You had the Lakshman yep. and, and Dravit, you know, the follow-on, the turnaround, the second test, third test. You had Harbhajan Singh taking a hat-trick. Um, what was it like on that tour, Cole? What was, what was it like? I sit back now and I, and I came back to, Australia, back to Australia after that tour. And, you know, obviously I grew up playing cricket, so a lot of my friends are cricketers and cricket people. And they all said they hadn't watched cricket for a few years because it was getting boring and it was, you know, tedious. And but to, and everyone said me that that was the rebirth of Test match cricket. That mm. series. All my friends said that. People back in Australia said that. The media were talking about it at that time being the rebirth, even though we lost. It was mm. such an exciting series. Um, the, the the there was the, the game at Eden Gardens. Um, there was one hundred and ten thousand people there every day. Jeez. So you're playing a game in front of half a million people. Yeah. Um, they're all cheering for their team, not cheering for your team at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, the third test that I played in, you're down at final leg and they're, they're throwing water bombs at you. And by the first hour, by the second hour of the first day, you're standing in half an inch of water at final leg. Um, they're throwing little blocks of concrete and locks at you. 
not to try to hurt you, just get your attention so you turn around and yeah. So you're standing amongst a, like a, a, a thousand paper aeroplanes, uh, <laughs> empty bags of water, stones and locks that have been thrown at you, padlocks, and just a phenomenal experience. And to, to hear their crowd, the, the way that their supporters supported at the time, Sachin Tendulkar. We think we have sporting heroes in Australia, but unless you've been to India when Sachin was at his at his best. Uh, and he's batting them at three, and they're cheering when they, when the first wicket falls because they know that Sachin's coming in next. And all you hear for the next eight minutes is the Sachin, Sachin, Sachin. Like you hear that from a hundred thousand people, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Like you're there going, this is this is really cool. Yeah. Um, and then and, that, and then to watch Matthew Hayden in that series, um, mm. just played out of his skin, phenomenal. If not for him, we would have lost those three tests in probably three days each. Mm. Um, he was just phenomenal. Um, Harbhajan just had an incredible series for an off spinner. Um, and I still say this day, he didn't spin it square um, because of his height and the, and the loop that he got. Mm. Uh, and he bowled a really, really good line. Um, he just tied the Australian batsmen in knots and it got to a stage where the guys were scared to use their feet. And then you start seeing bat pads everywhere and then guys start to play back off spinners, which is a deadly sin. Yeah. Um, he just he had Australia in a trance. Um, to see the way that they played, Shane Warne in that series was just ridiculous. The shots they were playing, BVS in that test match where they didn't lose a wicket for a day. Um, you had to see that that pitch had holes in it like almost an inch deep, yeah. and BVS was running down the wicket, hitting him inside out through the covers. Just ridiculous cricket that went on right throughout that series. Yeah, it was just a phenomenal series to sit back and watch. And then mm. thankful I got to play that third test and be a part of it. And uh, uh, and just to be able to come back and look and sit back and then and go, wow, that was a that was an awesome series of cricket, not just yeah. a loss for anybody, but just great cricket. Yeah, bloody, I, you went out on a good note too. I think it was a four for you got in the second dig. Is that right? Four. Five? I think I got three and three. Yeah, okay. Game, or four and two, might be four and two. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a nice way to go out too. Um, what was Steve War like as a captain? As I think he was cool. Kid, yeah, uh, I played under sixteens against Stephen. And Mark, so I knew them both reasonably. And again, you know, 12 years of first-class cricket against them as well. And um, the beauty, the difference between Mark War and, and Mark Taylor, say, and, and Stephen was that, and only had Tubby for, a, you know, a couple of tests. Tubby was the captain and it was his team. Um, mm-hmm. And he made most of the decisions. Um, and then when Stephen took over, Stephen really opened it up to the rest of the team to have opinions. Mm-hmm. Um so whether you're playing your first test or your 101st test, um, he wanted your input. Uh, as a bowler, for me, that was fantastic to have a captain letting me set the field 90% of the time. Yeah. Um, because now I'm, now I'm comfortable. The captain knows what I can do. He's going to let me do whatever I want to do and let me do it how I do it. Hmm. Um, not that Mark didn't do that. Mark was just different. He knew what I could do and he set the field the way I was going to bowl hmm. um, and just expected me to bowl to that field. But Stephen had a lot of input. Um, team meetings were a lot more open. Um, he was he was the boss, no doubt. He was the captain. And um, I remember one day at the MCG against the West Indies, I was bowling at the tail, and I really got a chance to bowl at the tail because Norman's McGrath and Warren came back on after I got like if I got eight and nine out, I'd be off. I'd have one <laughs> over two for nine. You have to have a break, Carl. I'm going to bring the good guy. I'm going to bring the big boys back on. And he left me on for a couple of overs, and number ten came out. And I wanted the guy at short mid-wicket, but Stephen said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop him back and I'm going to drop mid-off back. And the next ball, the guy that spooned it up right to short mid-wicket. <laughs> and I sort of went, 
sort of let the F word drop and then, damn it, Stephen. And he just, he walked up and he like came in the biggest server of all time. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I tried to shut up after that. Yeah. But I mean, it was, it was fine. It was, he was right to do what he, do what he did. But you know, I, I was going to a plan and his building plan was different to my bowling plan on that day for an over. Yeah. <laughs> hey, talking about the plans, you, you sound like someone who's very methodical, very methodical about the way you went about it. And on this podcast, you talk about sports performance and that. How much of analysis went into it? You watching tape of your upcoming opponents, coming up with your plans ahead of time? I wish we had tape back in those days. We, we, mm-hmm. Our era was just before that tape period. Yeah. Um, so really, most of what I learned was watching TV, watching Test Match Cricket Live. Yeah. Um, not tape. I think the invent of tape um, was is amazing. I, I went and watched Australia. Last time I was back in Australia, which is maybe six, five or six years ago, hmm. um, I went to the MCG to watch Australia play and Michael DiBenuto was the batting coach. I think he's back there now. Hmm. Um, I went into the rooms after the game to say day, and he had all the batsmen had iPads out and Michael had given their highlights for the day of their batting. And I'll hmm. just... There was um, swiping through the good shots they had played all day. Yeah. Positive feedback about themselves. I thought it was phenomenal. Yeah. I imagine the bowlers were doing the same thing, swiping through left to see the best balls they had bowled all day. Yeah. I wish we had that. Um, back in 20 odd years ago, we were really relying on just what you knew, yeah. um, what you knew your own ability level was, and, and what the other players in the teams that might have played as this guy before, what they were telling you. Yeah, it has evolved so much. Do you think what you did, being such a versatile player, are you sort of surprised there's not more of that, where you have players who can play multiple roles? Um, I think it's starting to come again. Um, I see now in T20 there's guys that are bowling medium pace, bowling spin. Reverse sweeping and reverse batting is almost the same thing these days. Yeah, true. I think it's slightly illegal. Because uh, I think I, don't, I think you should need to tell the bowler you're going to sweep him for six left-handed when you're a right-hand batsman. Yeah. Uh, I think it gives a batsman a bit of an advantage. Um, but I, I know I hear that there's bowlers around the world that are doing both. Mm. Um, I hear there's there's batsmen. I know for a fact there's got to be a batsman who can bat left and right-handed genuinely do either what what they want, whatever they want to do. Mm. I always thought growing up when I was playing cricket that I, I was a baseballer first. I was a pitcher. Yeah. And I always like pitching to left-hand pitches, left-hand batters. Yeah. Well, imagine if the whole team turned around and batted right-hand. Mm. I mean, you know, if Mitchell Johnson loves bowling in-swing as the left-hand batsman, why don't all the batsmen just turn around and bat right-hand yeah. and just negate Mitchell Johnson's best in-swinging Yorker? Totally. I mean, when Shane Warren is dominating world cricket, his legs and his leggies, why not all turn around and bat left-hand? You know, yeah. just... There's no reason why it can't happen in the future. It just, just needs a coach and someone with a bit of vision to spend a year or so training a team to do that. You, you, live, in, you live in the US. You've seen it. Baseballers are about left-hand one innings, right-hand the next innings, and they hit equal amount of home runs, you know, left to right-handed. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably the next area that cricket can go to to really change the game again is switch hitting, um, switch bowling, left and right arm bowling, um, which, which I did as well. Mm-hmm. Um there's no reason why you can't do it. I just think it takes someone with a bit of courage to do it. Yeah, uh, totally. Hey, well, would you get into a bit of coaching stuff in future? You know, we see the game expanding, all different teams from all around the world loving their cricket now. Would you get into it? 
Um, I, I was given an opportunity over here about seven or eight years ago to, to help the U.S. team out. Yep. Um, but at that time, U.S. cricket was was a shambles. wasn't very well run. It was you mm. know they wanted me to go my job here in Las Vegas to travel to New York and Florida and, and California and to do some coaching with with no guarantee I would ever get paid for anything or no guarantee that the association was even going to be recognised by the ICC. During that first three or four years I was in the US, the ICC suspended US cricket two or three times um, sure. just because it just wasn't, just wasn't being run very well. Mm. Um, and now to be a coach, you've got to be certified. Um, mm. I don't have the certifications. I don't have the time to go back and get the certifications. Maybe I could go back and, and as a mentor mm. at the very least. Um, but I respect the guys who are the coaches now. They've, they've done the hard work. Um, you don't have to be in a superstar player to be a coach these days. You need to understand how the body works, uh, the biomechanics, the physical side of the game, the mental side of the game. I think the best coaches in, in sport around the world, and America is a, is a great example, is they're people that not necessarily played the game at the highest level, but they're very smart about the game. And you see in the NFL over here now, there's a lot of 34-year-old coaches, head coaches now. And in baseball, there's a lot of 72-year-old coaches who, who <laughs> managing teams. So baseball is almost a reverse of football. is having a regeneration of young kids coming through. Hmm. Um, in the college game, I love watching Michigan as my team. And John Harbaugh last year was criticized for having a, a very boring style of play. So he got rid of all these old coaches and brought in a bunch of 30-year-olds. And now Michigan are 8-1 and this year, so... Yeah. It's just changed the way the game is played. And that's, and that's all cricket is. It's just changing the way it's played. Interesting. Well, I, I, you've been so generous with your time. Just last one. I mean, and it's appropriate for the bloke known as Funky to end up living in Las Vegas, which is, you know, the entertainment capital of the world. How do you enjoy Vegas? Um, <laughs> carefully. <laughs> I, mean, I used to, I, I, was, a, I was a gambler. Um, I should admit, um, in, in Melbourne, not in, not in Vegas. I haven't gambled since I've been here, 14 years. Um, Good on you. you can't live here and, and be a casino gambler unless you're a card counter or something like that, and they catch you pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. um, but my wife and I will go and drop 20 bucks in a slot machine somewhere, whether it's at a gas station or a, a pharmacy or I mean, yeah. anywhere you want to go, you can drop 20 bucks in a slot machine in Vegas. <laughs> yeah. um, but the, it is the entertainment capital of the world. I've seen every major act that's come through the Vegas in the last 14 years. The best um, live entertainment is here. Mm. Um, I'm a hockey fan now, the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, that's probably the most exciting sport I've ever watched in my life. Yeah, right. um, at T-Mobile Arena with 18,500 people supporting the one team. Yeah. Um, and they put on such a great show. You know, having played sport in, in Australia and around the world and then now supporting and watching sport in the US and just the way they do it on TV over here as well. Mm. Um, they do sport better than anywhere else in the world. Um, yeah. The introduction for the Vegas Golden Knights is a, is a phenomenal experience. Every three nights a week we go to games. Um, <laughs> Gilly was over here a couple of years ago just before. Gilly was here the week before, or two weeks before COVID struck. Oh, wow. Um, and, we, and we accidentally bumped into each other at a game of hockey. At the end of the game, we were both coming out of the bathroom. We, we sort of ran to each other. He'd been calling on my old cell phone number, so he couldn't contact me. So that's how we met. Yeah. And Gilly's now a big supporter of the Vegas Golden Knights because, really, if you haven't seen ice hockey, and like when, when, when you can have a Fennigan punch up and the referee just stands back and watches you until one of you falls on the ice, it's hysterical. <laughs> I watched a preseason game this year where there was 11 guys in the box in the first two minutes of the game. 
Oh, that's they almost ran out of players, but, but it's just <laughs> good fun and a lot of respect to, to the gold members over here. Um, you know, these pucks are traveling at 97 miles an hour and they're, yeah. they're plucking pucks out of the air. And and these guys, I watched the guy in the first year take a puck full onto his jaw, just a regular player in the field, Jeez. hit him in the jaw. He went down like a bag of spuds, got up, skated off, and came back on two minutes later. God, and these, these guys are tight, yeah. Extraordinary. Uh, NFL football is not that exciting over here. It's a pretty boring game. I've been to a few games over here. Uh, college football, I love. Yeah. Um, especially Michigan. I can't imagine that being a school kid and playing in front of 109,000 people every Saturday. Yeah. At Michigan. That's that's phenomenal. I mean, those he, kids are superstars. Uh, they certainly are. As are you, um, Cole. I just I thank you so much for your time. I love it. And for people listening, you know, this is a great tangible example of you know if you believe hard enough for long enough in your dreams, you can make them come true. Colin Absolutely. Miller, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, mate. You just got in time for my wife to go home and the dogs to start barking. So it's oh, a good time to end. Good timing. <laughs> <laughs>